and welcome to another episode of the Ben Morton Leadership Podcast. It's the weekly show that brings you inspiring interviews with senior leaders, managing directors, chief executive officers and genuine subject matter experts from all around the globe and it's all designed to help you be the very best leader you can possibly be. It's my gift to you and it's absolutely free. Today's episode is another of my solo episodes where I'm going to be talking about the subject of motivation. More specifically, in listening to this episode, you can expect to learn about the things that you might be inadvertently doing that are demotivating your team, or at least could be demotivating your team. We're going to look at the research around three of the key motivational forces that act upon people and how to use those. We'll explore why your current motivational tools or approaches may only be working for 50% of your people and they potentially might be demotivating or at least having zero motivational effect on the other 50%. And on top of that, I'm going to share one incredibly low cost motivational tool that will lead your people to still be singing your praises as a great leader 20 years from now. And I know that to be true because I see and hear it on nearly every leadership program that I run. So that's what you can expect to learn in today's episode of the Ben Morton Leadership Podcast. So let's dive right in. Let's start, first of all, by looking at the global context. What is the state of motivation out there in our workplaces? Well, a Gallup research study conducted recently in 2023 found that globally, just 23% of people say they feel motivated at work. That's pretty shocking. But then when you start to dive into some of the regional statistics, and certainly in my home country, the UK, that figure drops to just 8%. I genuinely find that shocking and quite sad that people are going to work with so little enthusiasm and motivation to do a good job. And it's on us as leaders and managers to do something about that. But, and I'll say this several times in today's episode, I think often we tend to come about this the wrong way. We work hard and scratch our heads trying to come up with ways to motivate our people. But the reality is, I think we need to pay much more attention to making sure that we're not doing things to demotivate those that we lead. And more on that later. So having looked at the global context where 23% or only 23% feel motivated or 8% in the UK, well, what's the impact of that? Let's now flip it and go the other way. So motivated employees are 87% less likely to quit their jobs. And if you've ever run any sort of recruitment process or you work in finance or have a budget, you will understand the cost associated with recruitment. 
not just the actual cost that we spend with advertising fees or recruitment consultants, but the cost of, of time, right? And the cost of lost productivity for the team and you as you try and get new people up to speed and as you all cover the vacant job whilst you're recruiting. So we need to try and keep our people. And then for those of you who are perhaps a little more commercially minded, motivated employees or a motivated workforce has been shown to increase the profitability of our organizations by up to 21%. And what organization wouldn't want to get a 21% uptake in profitability? But that's what's up for grabs if we can all work hard to keep our people motivated. And you'll notice again there, I said, keep our people motivated. So to dig into my perspective on this a little bit more, I've just said, I do not believe that it is our job as a leader of manager to motivate our people. Instead, it's our job to ensure we are not doing things to demotivate them. Why do I say this? Why do I take this slightly alternative, contrary view? Well, think about it this way. Think about the last time you yourself started a new job and think about your emotional state. I'm going to take a bet here and say you were excited, you were motivated, you felt passionate about the job and eager to get started. Yes, there's probably a little bit of nerves and anticipation in there, but you started in a motivated state. The same is true for most of us. When we start a new job, receive a promotion, in any of those situations, we start motivated. Yes, there might be an exception, right? If we take on a, a bigger role, but we've not been given the, the pay and compensation to reward it. But generally, 99 times out of 100, and by the way, 99% of statistics are made up on the spot. So that's not an actual statistic. But 99 times out of 100, people start a job motivated and excited. And therefore... If their motivation changes, something must have happened to cause that. And more often than not, it's things that the leaders within the organization are inadvertently or unwittingly doing. Now, of course, it's not quite that black and white. OK, there are exceptions to my point here. There might be a lot of significant organizational change that has led people to become slightly less motivated. You as a leader might be accepting a new job yourself and taking over a team that is demotivated because of something that's gone on with the past or because of how the previous leader led that team. So yes, there are exceptions. But my point is this, I truly believe we need to pay more attention to keeping our team motivated than motivating them because it's much easier to keep motivated people motivated than to try and motivate demotivated people. So I've said it's often about the things that we inadvertently do. Well, what are some of the biggest demotivators? Again, there's a lot of research out there on this, but to be honest with you, you'll know what most of the things are. Number one that normally tops most lists is micromanagement. You've all probably experienced that, I'm sure. Then you've got a lack of recognition and appreciation. And they're slightly different things, which I'll come on to shortly. 
having no opportunities for growth or development. And that could be formal or informal development. It's not just about us as leaders and managers sending people away on training courses. It's us making the time and investing the time in being fully present and engaged in their one-to-ones and giving them coaching and mentoring ourselves. Poor communication is another one, or actually rushing communication is often the, the root cause of this. We rush to try and send emails and get messages out and we don't actually pause to consider, is this clear? Does this make sense? What impact does this have on other people? Another significant demotivator, and this is one that may surprise you, is a lack of confidence in the competence of the leadership of our function, organization, or business. And we know this is significant because if you look at the leadership research conducted by Jim Cousins and Barry Posner in their book, The Leadership Challenge, over 35 years of research says that one of the top four things people all around the world have consistently said they want from their leader is competence, right? A leader where we know they take their role as a leader seriously and a leader who we trust can execute upon the strategy and the vision they've outlined to us. So, so far we've got micromanagement, a lack of recognition and appreciation, no opportunities for growth and development, poor communication, a lack of confidence in our leader's competence, poor relationships with colleagues or a toxic work environment comes next. And linked to that, one of the final big demotivators is when we see our leader or manager not handling poor performance or poor behavior. And when we fail to act on that, not only do people become demotivated, but they start to lose confidence in our ability and credibility as a leader, which takes us back to lack of confidence in the competence of leadership. So that's my view on motivation, folks. And there you have some of the key demotivating forces that can act on people. So let's now look a little bit at some of the fundamentals of motivation, some of the human fundamentals, right? So we know from something called self-determination theory that there are three key things associated with situations in which we feel motivated. To give you the headlines, they are autonomy, competence and relatedness or a sense of connection. OK, now let's look at these one by one. Autonomy isn't about giving people total freedom and absolute choice about what they do and how they do it. But it is about giving them some choice and freedom, certainly about how they deliver their work. Unless, of course, there is a very specific way that it must be done. It's really about delegation. It's about giving people freedom within a framework. It's about trusting our team to organize themselves and their work instead of them feeling they are being micromanaged. Research conducted by McGregor and Doshi found that the number one motivational driver at work is having some input into the design of our own role, right? It's about autonomy. Toyota apply this by encouraging their workers on the assembly line to come up with and test new tools and ideas on the production line. Southwest Airlines 
encourage their employees to treat each and every customer interaction as play, which we know is another intrinsic motivational force. So one of the ways they do this, some of the Southwest Airlines crew have turned their boring safety briefings that we've all seen hundreds of times into comedy sketches. It's play. They've got a degree of freedom and choice about how they deliver those presentations and they have a motivated workforce. So some ideas around implying this. Yes, processes and standard operating procedures and all of that good stuff are great for delivering consistent results, but they can be terrible for motivation. So I encourage you to think about how and where you can allow your people more freedom and choice. Where can you give them the space and the time to play and experiment? Where can you give them choice around how they deliver a particular task or objective for you and the rest of the team? If you do that, not only are you likely to get better results, but you'll certainly have a more motivated individual or team. So that's autonomy. Competence is about people having the confidence that they have the skills to do the job that they're being asked, or at least they have the agency or the ability to learn how to achieve and do what it is they're being asked to do. So the question here is, how are you developing those that you've got the privilege and responsibility to lead? Are you providing them with opportunities to, to test and improve their competence in a safe place? Are you giving the time to coach and mentor them? Are you making it safe to try things and learn the lessons from them? Or are you building a culture where there's a fear of failure? All right, it's really important that we build and develop the competence of those that we lead. And of course, make sure they've got the tools and resources to do the job we are asking them to do. And the third key element of self-determination theory, as I said, is about relatedness or a sense of connection, okay? So think about this. Are you intentionally building in time and space into your working schedule to help people connect and build deeper relationships? We humans are fundamentally social beings. We feel safer, we work better, we perform more effectively when we feel connected to a group or part of a team. Okay, Connection is absolutely key. Incidentally, connection is also absolutely key to living a long and healthy lifestyle. Right. The long running Harvard study that has tracked people from university for the past 40 or 50 years has found the number one thing that leads to a long, healthy life is connection. If you look at the blue zones where people lived, where they have the largest number of centenarians, people living to 100 years old, one of the key factors that link all of those blue zones is the strength of the relationships that people have. So not only is connection or relatedness key for motivation, it's key to living a long, healthy life. OK, and we need to be conscious of it. We need to build that connection into the workplace. Are you doing one-to-ones with your people regularly? Are you having some social events, even if it's just sitting and breaking bread, eating lunch together once a week? 
in your meetings, especially your online meetings? Do you take the time and allow five minutes of chat and connection before you start? Or do you always just get down to business, right? We want to feel connected. We want to feel part of something. It's what kept us alive when we lived in tribes on the savannah, right? When we're part of a group, we are safe. And talking of being safe, what we're fundamentally talking about here is psychological safety, right? Building a psychologically safe workplace. And that is key because I'm sure many of you listening will have heard of Google's Project Aristotle, which was a big research project they did looking into what it was about their highest performing teams that made them perform so well. And the number one factor associated with all of those teams, and as you would expect, folks, this was a very data-driven research project because it came out of Google, the number one factor they found associated with all of their best teams was psychological safety, which in a large part comes from connection. Next up, let's talk about why the main motivational tool that I suspect you might be using could only be working for 50% of those that you lead. Now, what I'm about to share comes from the world of neuro-linguistic programming or NLP. More specifically, it's about the filters or meta-programs, the thinking patterns and shortcuts that we use, that we run in our brain. One of these filters or meta-programs is what we call the motivational filter. What we're really talking about here is whether or not people respond to the carrot or the stick. And there's a big assumption in many workplaces that it's the carrot that really motivates people. But that's not true. You see, some people have what we call a towards motivation. They are very much motivated by achieving something by hitting a goal, by getting a bonus, by getting lots of praise, perhaps. Okay, These type of people respond very well to having a clear goal, seeing the milestones or way markers that will lead them to success. Okay, These are the carrot people. But there is a, another percentage of the global population who have what we call an away from motivation. These are much more motivated by what they don't want, by not failing, by avoiding common mistakes, by not missing a deadline. I'm one of these people. I have a strong away from motivation. Now, key point here. This is not about whether we are an optimist or a pessimist. OK, I have met a huge number of incredibly positive, optimistic people who still have an away from motivation. It's about understanding the motivational driver of those that we lead and then being able to adjust our language and how we delegate tasks and set goals to get the best out of the different people that we lead. How do you know who has what motivational force or driver? Well, now you've heard me talking about it, you'll just start to spot it. It might be that you set a goal for somebody and talk about the reward that they might get by hitting the, the target or achieving that goal. And their response just seems a little bit meh. If that's the case, then you just know, ah, maybe they have more of it away from. So let's shift my language. Let's shift how I present this task and then see what happens. 
If you want a very real world example of this in practice, there's an amazing experiment. It's one of my favorite experiments that I've heard about in the world of psychology and leadership and management. And it was done in Germany with football players or to my American friends, soccer players. So they had a group of strikers and they, the researchers knew the motivational mindset of the people, whether they were towards or away from motivated. And here's what they did. To the towards motivated people, and pay attention to my language here, for the towards motivated people, they said, you are going to take five penalty kicks. Your goal is to score three out of five. And when they did that, those players generally scored three out of five penalty kicks. They then did the same task with the strikers with an away from motivation. But this time, they changed their language. To these people, to the away from motivated people, they said, you're going to take five penalty kicks. Your goal is to not miss more than two. And guess what? They all scored three out of five. They then did the same experiment, flipping the language. Okay, so to the towards motivated people, they gave them the goal in away from language. They said to them, you're going to take five penalty kicks. Your goal is to not miss more than two. And generally, they missed more than two. And they did the same for the away from motivated people. So language matters. How we set up goals matters, not just on motivation, but also on performance. And if you've ever been involved in any sport or ever hit any target yourself, you know that when you achieve something, when you win, regardless of what motivational force is acting on you, you feel good and you feel more motivated. So pay attention to how you set goals and targets and delegate jobs. And just as importantly, pay attention to the response that you get from those that you lead. And then either repeat it if it works, or if you see it's not working, flip your language and approach. As I say, you'll get better results from your team and they'll be way more motivated. So in this episode, I've got one more thing that I would love to share with you in this little mini motivation masterclass. This is really about recognition and appreciation. And I promised you I'd talk more about this. Recognition and appreciation are two words that we often use interchangeably at work, but they are very different. Recognition is about some sort of praise or reward based upon what we do. It's very much output driven. Okay. Appreciation, on the other hand, is about appreciating the person, not necessarily for what they do, but more broadly for who they are. And again, what does the research say? Well, one study said that 81% of people feel that being recognized for what they do at work is a strong motivator. 69% say they would work harder at work if their efforts were better recognized. And again, for the more results orientated people, for the more commercially minded people, perhaps productivity increases by 23 percent when people feel recognized for what they do.
other hand, remember, this is about when people feel appreciated for who they are, not just what they do. The stats around this say that around 40% of people don't feel appreciated at work, but productivity goes up by around 43% when they feel appreciated. So you can see recognition is important and has a big productivity uplift when people feel recognized, but appreciation is even more significant, right? So we need to focus on doing both. How do we do it? How do we make people feel appreciated? Well, there are hundreds of ways. And if I sat down with you and a group of people and said, let's take 30 minutes and brain, brainstorm low cost methods of making people feel appreciated and providing recognition, we'd very quickly come up with a list of about 50, I'm sure. However, one that I love, one that I know is incredibly powerful is to take the time to send handwritten notes and thank you cards to those that we lead. You'll have heard the old adage that it's the thought that counts. Well, it turns out that's not true. In the modern world, it's actually the effort that counts. Writing a handwritten card or letter takes effort and a little bit of time, right? We have to find a nice card or a nice bit of paper, find a nice pen. We have to pause and slow down to think about what we're writing. We potentially have to find the person's address and walk to the post box to send it. And people appreciate that effort. And there's a huge novelty factor, right, to handwritten cards and letters. Because like, we don't receive them very often, other than perhaps birthdays and at Christmas time. And when a handwritten card drops on our letterbox, or we find it in our mailbox, when we're not in work mode, it catches us sort of unaware and it has a real novelty value. And we sit and read it at home and we take it in and we appreciate it. It has a huge motivational effect. And as I say, I know this to be true because in nearly every workshop I run, working with, who has ever received a handwritten thank you card or letter from a previous boss, manager or leader? And normally in every group, there's about a fifth of people put their hands up. And then when I start to ask them about it, you see these people come alive, their state changes. And in that moment, it is always obvious to me and everyone else in the room that those people would have done almost anything for that particular manager that they had. And here's the amazing thing. People hang on to those cards, right? The oldest one I've heard about is someone still having a card from a previous manager that they received over 20 years ago, right? It's so cheap. It's so simple to do but it has such a powerful motivational impact. And to finish, I've got one final story that I absolutely love. So there's a gentleman called Doug Conant, who became the CEO of Campbell's Soup Company back in 2001. And then it was a failing company and he turned it around. How did he do it? It was in part by writing thank you notes. And he wrote a lot of them. It's reported that he wrote over 30,000 cards in 10 years. That averages out, if you do the maths, as around 10 per day. They weren't emails. They weren't voice notes. They weren't LinkedIn shout outs. They were handwritten notes. And they weren't written by his PA or an intern. They were written by him in his words. And in his words, he said, 
I made it personal. The Forbes writer, Deborah Sweeney, says that Connaught's feat is even more remarkable when you consider that Campbell's Soup Company only had around 20,000 employees. And that means he made personal contact with pretty much every single person who works there, right? He sent notes to celebrate his staff's personal contributions, to say thank you for work they've done. He sent birthday cards, but he made it personal. He built trust and connection with people. And as a result, the company turned around its failing fortunes. So if you do nothing else as a result of listening to today's episode, go out, buy a pack of thank you cards or a pack of decent writing paper and a nice pen and start looking for opportunities to send thank you cards and handwritten notes. As Ken Blanchard, one of the most prolific leadership and management authors once said, look to catch people doing things right. There you have it, folks. That is the end of today's solo episode. A little longer than most solo episodes, but I really want to give you as much value, advice and tips as I possibly can around motivation. And remember, it's about doing all we can to keep people motivated and ensure we're not doing things to demotivate people. If you've got value from this episode of the Ben Morton Leadership Podcast, then there are a few things you could do to say thank you. Share the post out, share this episode, sorry, out with your friends and colleagues. And after you've done that, it would be amazing if you could spend just a couple of minutes to write a short review of the show wherever you happen to be listening. And do also remember to check out the Leaders Kitbag episodes of the podcast. It's the micro version of the podcast. The episodes are just five or six minutes long. There's a new one every week and they are super practical and tactical. Each month I'm focusing on a new topic or area of leadership and giving you a stack of tips and tactics to help you be the best leader you can possibly be. That's it for this episode, folks. Look after yourself. Look after those you've got the privilege and responsibility to lead. And until next time, lead on.